This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest, and you are in for quite a treat. His name is Leon Cooperman, and what a storied background he has from Hunter College to Columbia MBA to Goldman Sachs to Omega Advisors. Uh, essentially, we discuss everything from value investing and growth in a reasonable price to what it's like to have dinner at the White House with President Trump. Uh, he is a participant in the Giving Pledge, where he is committed to giving away all of his billions of dollars to various philanthropies, including Columbia University, Hunter College. He uh, funds a program in New Jersey that sends 500 students to college. Uh, and there are few people who know as much about the industry of investing uh, as he does. He has seen it from just about every angle, be it creating Goldman Sachs Asset Management Division to uh, beating the S&P 500 by a substantial percentage uh, over a long period of time at the hedge fund. I think you'll find this to be an absolutely fascinating conversation. And so with no further ado, my Masters in Business conversation with Lee Cooperman. My special guest this week is Lee Cooperman. He is a return guest, and we decided to bring him on because of some changes that he has made to his hedge funds, uh, Omega, which was launched in 1991 and, and has substantially beat the market by a, a fairly wide margin since then. Lee went to uh, Hunter College undergrad, got his MBA from Columbia Business School, where he went with a number of esteemed colleagues. He joined Goldman Sachs in 1967, where he spent 22 years in investment research, where he was frequently voted onto the Institutional Investors All-America Research Team for Portfolio Strategy. He helped create and launch the Goldman Sachs Asset Management Unit, where he was eventually chief investment officer, chairman, and CEO uh, prior to launching Omega Hedge Fund in 1991. Lee Cooperman, welcome back Thanks. to Bloomberg. Thanks for having me, Barry. So you recently set out a, a notice that you were converting Omega to a family office, and I thought that was uh, as good an excuse as any to get you back uh, into chat about markets and the economy. But first, let's talk about that conversion. What was the thinking behind it? What what motivated that? Well, two factors. Uh, I turned 75 uh, in April, mm -hmm. and I recall reading somewhere that uh, the statistics say that if you make it past 65 and cancer doesn't get you, on average, you'll make it to 85. Mm -hmm. And I did not want to spend the next 10 years, the remaining 10 years, if I'm average, running after the S&P. And uh, what solidified that uh, was I went to a concert with Kenny Rogers, the country and western singer, mm -hmm. who I and like his talent. And I found it interesting. He was having great difficulty negotiating the stage, getting around. Uh -huh. And he made the comment that he's turning 80. He shouldn't be doing this anymore, but he's on his fifth marriage and he needs the money. <laughs> and I said to myself, you know, I've been lucky. I've been married 54 years to one woman. Uh, I don't need the money. My money is going back to society through charitable giving. Um, and uh, I wanted to fold it at the top. So, you know. That's uh, the difference between you and Kenny Rogers. You know when to hold them and when to fold them. Apparently, yeah. Kenny does not. I hope so. But basically, um, over the years, I've noticed, particularly in 2008, that a lot of hedge funds close up when they're down. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't consider, they're just a personal view. I'm not moralizing. But I think a high watermark is an asset of the investor. Yes. And if you basically close up and give them their money back involuntarily. In other words, one thing if the investor says, look, I had enough, I want my money back, they get their money back. But to give them their money back when they don't want it and they're willing to bet on you turning the ship around is not right. So I was up in 16, 17, I'm up uh, about 7% this year. So everyone that's with me at this moment in time is at a record high in their capital account and now's the time to fold them. Because that, I do believe looking out, uh, you know, I'm not a, a pessimist, but I think it uh, stands to reason that 2019, 2020, we have a market setback. I tend to be more long-oriented. 
And I don't want to be 77 years old owning somebody a high watermark and feeling obligated to stay in business. What did clients say when you notified them, hey, we're, it, we're, here's some capital back. Thanks for sticking around for 20 not years. Not some. It's all your 20, capital. 20, almost 30 years. 20, 26 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been very gratified. Uh, I'm not shocked, to be honest with you. I don't want to sound self-serving. But you know, I've lived a very straight life. I've run the business always through the eyes of the investor. And the emails I've gotten uh, are just off the charts uh, favorable. I could read some of them to you. I don't want to take your time, but uh, it's uh, it's uh, very, hold, gratif- very gratifying. Hold on to those. We're going to come back to some of those emails a little later. Um, internally, within the firm, what was the decision-making process like? You obviously well, the, have employees working for you. The most painful part of the decision, the most painful far and away, is I have to resize the staff. Mm-hmm. You know, I have uh, between 35 and 40 loyal, hardworking, very competent people, whether they be analytical or support. And in the family office, I probably have 12 to 15. Mm-hmm. So I have to help place or take care of uh, upwards of- uh, Two-thirds. Yeah. That's, a, and, that's uh, a big downside. That's the most painful part of it. You know, I've spent 26 years building the right team, the right infrastructure, uh, write computers, programs, everything to run the business. And I love what I do, to be honest with you. I do what I love. I, uh, in fact, tonight I'm speaking to 35 students at Columbia Business School. I tell them the secrets of success is do what you love, love what you do. Don't go into a field for money. Go into a field because you have a passion about it. And I have a passion about investing, which I'm going to continue to do. I just did not want to have the responsibility of running other people's money at this stage of my life. So I've called you the hardest working man in hedge funds. No, no, you're James. quoting uh, my our, our mutual friend, Doug Cass. All right, the James gracious. Brown of hedge funds is where I was going to go with Doug. Doug called you. Um, when you finish this transition, are you still going to be starting at ungodly early hours and reading, no, no, no. Right reading now, reports till midnight, or is that right, throttled back? Right now, uh, my alarm clock goes over 5.50 in the morning, and mm-hmm. I spend an hour and 10 minutes coming in from the suburbs to New York, and an hour and 10 minutes going home at night. And I expect that I'll sleep a little bit later, uh, but I'll visit more companies. I'll mm-hmm. be intense. I will be oriented towards long-term capital gains. Uh, the S&P 500 will be an irrelevancy to me. Uh, and with right now, it's not. My investors pay me a fancy fee, and they deserve to get the best performance I can give them. But I'm going to be managing the money for after-tax returns. After-tax returns. So that's a, that's a substantial change. What other changes are you looking at? You don't strike me as a golfer. No, uh, I'm not a golfer, but I have a particular problem now as we sit here talking. Uh, I ride a bicycle in Florida every day, mm-hmm. and some octogenarian was not careful on his golf cart, and he hit me while I was riding my bike and uh, fell on my shoulder and have a four and a half centimeter rotator cuff tear, which is you know, reasonably painful, yes. uh, but it's kind of ended my golf days unless I go for surgery for repair. And the surgery, I'm told, is very complex. And a terrible a year of physical therapy afterwards. You, you, you got it. And so uh, basically, I've been to four different doctors, and they all say the same thing. The only reason to have surgery is if you uh, can't sleep at night, mm-hmm. you're in excruciating pain, or it affects your lifestyle. Thankfully, I'm able to sleep at night. Uh, the pain is mild, but reasonably consistent. And it has affected my lifestyle, but I'm not a passionate golfer. So uh, I'll live with it, and I go to physical therapy twice a week and uh, try to build up the muscles in the area to compensate for the tear. Let's talk about those days in 1991 uh, when you first started. Uh, Jim Chanos said when he began his fund, there were only a few hundred um, managers, and most of them were generating alpha. Today, there's 11,000 hedge fund managers, and it seems... The same few hundred are generating alpha. What was it like back in 1991 when you launched Omega? Well, there was less competition. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure what the exact number of hedge funds were, but I th- one of the statistics that strikes me is about a decade ago to today, the number of publicly traded companies are down by about 40% mm-hmm. because of mergers, consolidations, going private. In that same period, hedge funds are, uh, have gone up by fourfold. Wow. So, you know, That's number amazing. of companies down 40%, number of competitors looking for alpha up fourfold. So, you know, it, it, it's difficult. But I, I, I never went into the hedge fund business to make a lot of money. I was a very happy partner at Goldman Sachs. I was, I think at the time, fifth highest percentage partner of the firm. Uh, the firm was doing well. I loved what I did for a living. 
but I wanted to start a hedge fund as a way of um, co-investing with my investor, uh-huh. prospective investors. And the firm at that time wasn't ready to have a hedge fund because they were they had a vision in their mind, which was incorrect in my opinion, that I'd be short some investment banking client of the firm. Sure. The client would find out, find out, and they'd have hell to pay. Um, the fact of the matter is, I'm a long-term investor and. Uh, not had the problem, and, and the firm is really their views have maturated because I think sure. they, they have a lot of hedge funds on the premises now. In fact, there has been a fairly steady stream of people departing Goldman Sachs, but retaining the relationship with Goldman as their prime broker for for that hedge fund. What was the big change? You know, you when you left Goldman, you had previously said. They were they were pretty supportive of everything you were doing. Yeah, yeah, no. I, uh, how, what, how did they manage to to mature their views on this? Well, just the passage of time. You know, uh, uh, if you go back to ancient history, uh, really uh, a decade before I left, I was telling Goldman they were they were making a big big mistake by not being in asset management. Mm-hmm. And the senior partners at the time said, "You don't get it, Lee. We're of the view that brokers should do brokerage, money managers do money management." Don't compete with your customer. Mm-hmm. And I would say to them, wake up, smell the roses. Look at, you have Merrill Lynch Asset Management. You have Webster, which is a division of Kidder Peabody. CSFB Asset Management. Everybody was in the business, except one firm who they viewed as their arch rival in trading. That was Solomon Brothers. Right. And one day, uh, Solomon announced that Bob Solomon Jr., who was a good man, was leaving the research department to start Solomon Brothers Asset Management. At which point, uh, Steve Friedman and Barb Rubin called me up and said, you know, you were right. We made a mistake. We should have gone into the business. Would you leave research and start asset management and build us a business like you built us in research? Uh, for the record, not blowing my own horn, but just factually, when I took over Goldman Research in 1900, and I guess it was uh, 75, 74, it was r- relatively unranked. And when I left the research department, we were number one in II, number one in Greenwich Research, number one in Financial World. I also happened to be the lead strategist, and I was number one for nine straight years in strategy. So I was ready for a new challenge, and I accepted their invitation and started Goldman Sachs Asset Management. And frankly, about a year after I started, I realized I had made a mistake. The firm is a great firm, and they understood assets under management times fee equal revenue. Right. And they were interested in me building a big business. I was really focused on investment performance. Uh-huh. I wanted to co-invest with the investors and build a track record. And it became obvious to me that you know they wanted me on the road, innovating new products, raising more money, and I wanted to manage the money. You know, I was the guy that discovered Henry Singleton of Teledyne and Wall Street mm-hmm. and made a big bet on him and proved to be correct. And so uh, I went to them. I said, look, you know, I'd like to start a hedge fund as part of the asset management business. And uh, they originally said yes, and then they changed their mind. And they changed their mind. Again, all this is nuances. They had uh, sponsored a fund called the Water Street Recovery Fund, which was a vulture fund. Mm -hmm. They would buy up distressed debt from defaulted uh, issuers and reorganize them. And that created some consternation from the high-yield clients of the firm. They were selling them bonds, which they didn't know the firm was intending to restructure the companies. And so they had a lot of adverse publicity. John Weinberg, bless him. Uh, it was impressed by the negative, you know, feedback and went in and closed the fund down and returned all the money. And they came back to me and they said, you know, forget about it. We're not going to go from the frying pan to the fire. No right. hedge fund. We'll put you on the executive committee and you run GSAM as a business manager, not as a money manager. You couldn't be a money manager because you come into contact and a lot of confidential information if you're on the executive committee. I, I told them my wife, had, uh, I went home, thought about it. My wife came up with a great line. She said, you know, how old are you going to be and how rich are you going to be before you do what you want to do? <laughs> so I went back. I said, listen, that's been a great place for me, Goldman. But I really want to manage money. Uh, and uh, basically, um, uh, you know, I'll stay as long as you want me to stay, but I would like to basically ultimately leave. And I stayed for a year and consulted for a year. And it was a great place. I grew up at Goldman. And I have great, great feelings about Goldman. So... Walk us through what your process was like at Omega, or is still like at Omega, when you're trying yeah, to make we're a decision. Still, we're still in business yeah. at Omega, when, and uh, I'll run it the same way. Uh, I like to have a lot of arrows in my quiver. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very hard to take 15 or 20% off the top and beat the market, okay? And so I like to have a lot of different strategies that I could pursue. And um, basically, we try to make money for the investors in five different ways. 
First, stocks are high-risk financial assets. Short-term bonds and cash are low-risk financial assets. And we spent a lot of time, this is Steve Einhorn, my partner, we've been working together for over 40 years, a terrific guy, terrific guy. And we spent a lot of time studying the economy, the Fed, valuation, and try to figure out, is the market undervalued going up, overvalued going down? It could be fully valued going up, etc. Because that determines our exposure to risk assets. Number two, all the studies I've read on portfolio returns say more important than being the right individual stock in any one year is also being the right asset class. So we spent a lot of time looking at returns in fixed income versus equities, and in fixed income, we cover the gamut. We're government bonds, high-grade industrial bonds, uh, uh, high-yield bonds, structured credit, and we're trying to look for the straw hat in the winter. What's the mispriced <laughs> asset? Okay. The uh, third thing we do, which is our bread and butter business, which is where I spend most of my time, is undervalued stocks on the long side, uh, not as successful. We spend time looking for overvalued stocks on the short side. And then we do a certain amount of macro trading where we'll basically go long or short a currency, long or short a commodity, long or short an index away from the S&P 500. And we risk about 2% of capital in the macro area to make it an incremental 5 or 6% a year. So I, I would bill Omega saying we're an equity-oriented hedge fund with a macro capability. So let, let me put some numbers, uh, some flesh on the bones. You return 12.6% a year net of fees versus 9.6%. For the S&P 500, about a third better than the broad index did. What do you think is the single biggest contributor to that outperformance? Well, uh, you know, uh, number one, it, 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 the record's okay. There are better records around, but, you know, you got to adjust for risk. We've done it maybe 70% net long over 26, year, 26 years. And I say we, we're disciplined. You know, we're, we're value-oriented. So as I said before, we figure, try to figure out the market. We've got the market right a lot of the time. And then second, we really look at individual stocks. And my benchmark, I look at the S&P 500. And what does that represent? Most people don't even know what the S&P 500 represents. It's an index of 500 companies that are growing about 5% a year that have a, a dividend yield of about 1.8%, that uh, have debt about 40% of their capital structure. Uh, I think I mentioned it growing about 5 6% a year. And for that uh, statistical compilation, you're paying about 18 times earnings. Mm -hmm. So we're looking for more growth, more earnings, more asset value. They're, they're trading around three times book value for a lower price. And that's what we do. So we're just looking for value. And generally speaking, if you correctly identify value, that's one of the big protectors of your downside if you're buying something that's reasonably cheap to begin with. Margin of safety. Let's talk a little bit about something we discussed the last time you were on. And we had to kind of dance around it because it was still... Um, an open live issue. Uh, you had a run-in with the SEC. Tell us a little bit about that. What was it like when you first learned uh, they were looking into Omega, and how did it affect your your trading? Let me just say this: I entered into what's called a no admit and no deny uh, agreement. So uh, I don't admit I did anything right or wrong, whatever the hell the. the but between is. last time you were here, you were pretty adamant you didn't do anything wrong. Yeah, um, yeah, but I, like I said, I'll repeat: uh, there's all sorts of legalese below. <laughs> sure. <laughs> no admit, no deny. Um, I totally did not appreciate the power of the SEC, their abusive nature, mm -hmm. um, and the problems with the system. Whereas they served me, uh, there was no broad-scale investigation to all sorts of trading. It was a, an investigation to trade on one company. And uh, basically, we told them when we received the subpoena that withdraw the subpoena. And I guess I want to make the point, every step along the way where they had the chance to operate in a, in a proper manner, in my opinion, proper manner, they basically rejected it. They tried. You to, were an adversarial. You were very cooperative. I you tried said, to basically get them to sit down. Let me explain this they, to you. This is really and, very and, simple. And, and every it's not step a problem. along the way, they rejected it like they wanted to inflict maximum damage, which they succeeded in doing. So we get the subpoena, and I tell my lawyers, tell them, withdraw the subpoena. I'll meet with you. I'll answer all your questions. And if you don't like the answers, you can reinstate the subpoena. Right. And you have nothing to lose. They refuse. They say respond to the subpoena. So I spent a couple million dollars or more responding to the subpoena. Wow. And uh, basically they then, and my lawyer, uh, you know, my lawyer basically tells me, you're ruining the man's business. We've studied the trading. There's no inside trading here. It's unfair. And uh, they went down to Washington 
and basically the guy at the SEC says, well, if Mr. Koopman wants to settle, we'll take a five-year bar from the industry, an admission of guilt, effective admission of guilt, and a $10 million fine. And I told my lawyers, look, you tell them whatever somebody from Harvard and Yale Law School tells them. <laughs> I grew up in the South Bronx, and you can give them the Rockefeller salute for me, <laughs> if your viewers know what that is. But it's when... Nelson Rockefeller spoke with the inmates at Attica, and they shouted him down, and he got frustrated, and he gave him the index finger. <laughs> the now, index finger is, or the Jason to the index uh, finger? With the middle, middle <laughs> finger, whatever that's called. And um, five months later, after my business was substantially damaged, the ICC, with no new information, uh-huh. comes back and says, okay— no admission of guilt, no, no, it's called no admit, no deny, no timeout, and give us $4.9 million. My lawyers say, congratulations, you, <laughs> you won. <win. laughs> and I say, what did I win? Uh, we don't have losing party pays in America. Right. Uh, the government has sovereign immunity. I can't sue them. Uh, and they uh, basically uh, are using taxpayer money to fund their picadillos. Um, and so uh, my advocacy, uh, after I close up Omega, become a family office is we should have a losing party pays system because uh, what happens so it shouldn't lo- be a speculative let's yeah, just throw it against the wall and my see lawyers what again I, I'm attributing this to my lawyers which are factual in a court of law you know I, I don't want any problems with the SEC my lawyers say congratulations you won okay if we go to trial we think 90% probability you're going to win but it'll cost you how much no let me finish 90% probability you're going to win Okay, the 10% chance you don't win has nothing to do with the case. It's because you're rich, it's because you run a hedge fund, and because you're a former Goldman Sachs partner. The juries don't like guys like you. I said, but listen, I'm sending 500 kids to college in Newark, New Jersey. They don't care. They don't like guys like you. Right. If we go to trial, the 90% chance you win, we estimate they'll tie you up for two years with appeals, and it'll cost you $20 million. Give them the $4.9 million, it's over. I gave him the $4.9 million. I'm still conflicted about that decision to, to even today uh, because uh, it just it bothers me. The system is wrong. The system is wrong. I don't want to go through all the facts of the case because that could be an hour, and it'll come to light when I write the book. So, And you should write the book, but let me ask you this question. If a young colleague came to you, a person who's not running a few billion dollars, running a small hedge fund, and... and he screwed. Well, if he were to say to you, Lee, I have this, uh, I think I'm completely innocent, right. and here's the deal. It'll cost me a couple million dollars to make it go away, but I could fight and win, and it'll cost me 10 times that. What should I do? What What would your advice to them well, be? Well, number one, does he have the 20 million? <laughs> uh, maybe. <laughs> Probably not. If he's a young guy and he's starting out, he doesn't have the money. I spent close to 50 years developing my reputation. Mm-hmm. Uh, God's been very good to me. I've worked very hard, but you know, I know people that work hard that don't have the money. I've made a decent sum of money. I've happened to take a giving pledge with uh, Warren Buffett and Bill Gates. Uh, but to me, my reputation was paramount, and I would spend whatever I had to spend to defend myself. Uh, but if you take a 30-year-old kid or a 25-year-old kid just Even starting 50, out in business, somebody who's 50. He, he, he can't do it. The odds are he'll fold, he'll give them the money, and that's what they bet on. Mm-hmm. Well, I will tell you a little anecdotal story. Um, about five months ago, uh, an account, major accounting firm, as I tell you, Price Waterhouse, had a seminar in Palm Beach. I live in Boca Raton, six mm-hmm. and a half months a year. And basically, the guest speaker was Mary Jo White. And I wanted to go uh, because she was the head of the SEC at the time my case was brought. And I walk over to her and I say, you're lucky I'm a gentleman. I'm not going to attack you in public. But I told her who I was. She knew exactly who I was mm-hmm. when I told her. Okay, it says, here's a sealed envelope. In the envelope is a question. If you answer the question, I will give $100,000 to your favorite charity. She says, I can't wait. What's the question? I said, when you originally, when your staff originally went after me, basically you asked for a five-year bar, admission of guilt, and $10 million fine. And I refused. Five months later, with no new information on your part, your staff came back and said, okay, no admission of guilt, meaning no admit, no deny, no timeout, and give us $4.9 million. What did you learn between your first ask, which destroyed the business because it was totally unacceptable, mm-hmm. and your second ask, which was of your first ask, I would have accepted to get rid of you? And the response was, innocent people. She didn't say I was innocent. She said, innocent people often settle, but the litigation cost and time demands are so much greater than the settlement cost. Now, I submit that's a disgraceful situation. And what happens at, with these regulators is they bring a case 
with the hope of bringing down a high-profile guy or gal, taking that accomplishment and getting themselves a job in the private sector as defense attorneys. Mm-hmm. When I told my attorney what Ms. White said, they said it's not a surprise because at the SEC she was acting like a prosecutor, right. and now she's in private practice. She's talking like a defense attorney. And I don't think the way it should be. I think they should have sat down with me, understand all the answers. But I could give a whole bunch of things. My son, I was half his capital, run, ran a hedge fund. He was short the stock the day of the announcement. Not long. He lost money. The stock went up 30%. I didn't buy any stock myself. It was only bought in two accounts. But I don't want to – we could spend an hour and a half on all the right. facts. Huh. Quite fascinating. But it's a sad situation, and uh, hopefully there'll be some remediation, make it better for the next person. But to specifically answer your question, if you're a youngster and don't have a lot of money, uh, you're out of business. <laughs> Unbelievable. Let's talk a little bit about where we are in the state of the economy today. Um, as a value investor, what do you think about markets here? I think the S&P 500 is reasonably adequately valued. Fair value, right fair, here. Fair value. Fully valued, fair value, say what you want. Um, and my overriding theme is we're heading towards normalization. Mm-hmm. For the last seven or eight years, and even now, to some degree, we're in an abno- abnormal environment. What do I mean by that? There's $9 trillion of sovereign debt around the world that carries a negative interest rate. Whereas you've got to pay the government to carry their debt. It's crazy, okay? And so we're heading to normalization. To me, normalization is the labor force grows about a half of 1% per annum. Mm-hmm. The productivity of the labor force grows about 1.5% per annum. So that's real growth of about two. Right now we're growing, you know, three to four. Um, the inflation rate, maybe 2%. So nominal GDP grows at 4%. Mm-hmm. 2% real, 2% inflation. Uh, and in an 4% nominally growing world, the Fed funds rate ought to be two and a half to three, which will take you a year to get there. Currently, I think one and three quarters or right. two. Uh, and the 10 year government ought to be close to four, currently hovering under three. In that world, the S&P multiple should be, I think, about 17 times. So 17 times this year, we're using an estimate of 158, is 2686. Um, and 17 times next year is 168 which would be my estimate at the preliminarily mm-hmm. now is 28.56. We're hovering in those areas. So I mm-hmm. think the market is adequately valued. Um, uh, on the other hand, the conditions for a big decline are not present. In other words, bear markets don't emerge out of immaculate conception. They come about for fundamental reasons. Generally speaking, number one, the stock market smells an oncoming recession. Mm-hmm. If anything, the economic data reads exactly Celery. opposite. Right. Exactly. The second reason we have a bear market is the central bank gets to the market and uh, through uh, aggressive tightening turns it down. And they've been moving very slow. I think they're behind the eight ball myself. Third is investor exuberance. And I would say if you look at the flow of funds out of equity funds into fixed income product, you know, there's a few signs of exuberance you know, in an Amazon, uh, which could be justified by the fundamental growth, or a Tesla, which I don't think is justified. But, you know, by and large, you know, the great line, I only wish I coined it, but I give him great credit all the time, is John Templeton's. Bull markets are born Mm -hmm. on pessimism, they grow on skepticism, they mature on optimism, and they die on euphoria. We clearly have optimism by and large, but we do not have any signs of euphoria. And the fourth thing is some kind of cause of a bear market is some significant geopolitical event which you can't forecast. And certainly a lot going on in the world. Uh, it's very clear that, uh, you know, what's going on with Russia and uh, Putin and Trump, et cetera. It's, well, it's, well, it's very complex. Let, let's talk about that a little bit. We have North Korea. time Cor- I got in trouble talking about politics. <laughs> well, yeah. but let's talk about global events and not politics. North Korea or Iran has been saber-rattling uh, at and with both countries. It, are, are either of those a legitimate threat to the market? Well, if something went wrong, I mean, mm-hmm. I think that the president, uh, I think he's been on the right track with North Korea, mm-hmm. and I think he was on the right track with Iran. Uh, I think I never worried much about North Korea. The only concern with North Korea is if uh, Rocket Man launched a rocket that they lost control over and landed in the wrong place. Right. But as long as the rockets land in the water, and uh, we're fine. Um, but um, no, these are potential risks. But you know, no one knew about the Cuban Missile Crisis, right. uh, Kennedy Steel confrontation. You know, there are things in the geopolitical world that can go wrong. I mean, clearly we have a, a, an unusual president. Uh, 
Um, and I think we'll get a referendum about his policies in November. And it's not clear what to happen. I myself am conflicted, in all honesty. What What about uh, issues of tariffs and trade? I, the I, tariffs I are wrong, and I think the market believes that they're wrong. And the market has been, up until now, generally complacent. because what's happened, even. Uh, what's happened is he's generally backed off mm-hmm. on controversial policies and ultimately caved in and listened to his advisors. You know, during the campaign, he was very negative on NATO. Uh, Mattis told him that NATO was important, so all of a sudden NATO is important. You know, although uh, there's been a lot of jawboning about NATO in the last more G7 on the expense meeting. side, the the equitable yeah. carrying of expenses. Uh, I, I, what worries me, to be honest with you, is more the fiscal policy we're pursuing, in the sense that you know the unemployment rate is near full employment, um, and uh, the deficit is not coming down. So I think that there's a good chance it's, that it's not only is it not coming down, it's been yeah. expanding. I, I think it's a good. We're chance. just about we're, a trillion now, which is one of the reasons I decided to become a family office. You know, I lost money uh, mm-hmm. in in 2008 personally, mm-hmm. and I did a poor job for my investors in in what 2008. Mm-hmm. I lost a lot of money. Market was down 37 percent that yeah, year. Yeah, peaked I was across. down less than the market, but okay. I lost a lot of money. Okay, mm-hmm. and the truth be known. I was less concerned about my own money, but very concerned about my investors' money. I live a very simple life. I've been married 54 years to the same woman. She taught for 35 years. I don't collect art. Uh, last time we spoke, uh, you know, my, my auto, I have one automobile that's uh, uh, 16 years old. I know. I lectured you to go get a new car with Bluetooth and I did. And you succeeded. I got a new car for the safety <laughs> features, but I still have a, a, a 2002 automobile that I drive and I like. Um, and so, you know, I live a very simple life and I have no borrowings or owe anybody a penny, but I cared about my investors because I let them down. And so uh, I'm concerned about fiscal policy. The deficit should be coming down, not going up. The president is very, very much, you know, promoting things for his base. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we're going to buy American and you disregard the law of comparative advantage and we put on these tariffs, um, and the labor markets are tightening and the price of oil is going up, I would think common sense suggests there should be an inflation surprise, which will affect the Fed and it'll affect the market. It's a little bit like uh, what's happening with the FANG stocks now. You know, Facebook uh, uh, missed a number, they had a decline in users, and all of a sudden everybody thinks the world's come to an end for FANG, which I doubt. Hmm. You know, but, you're, uh, you're totally talking my book with inflation. You look at this aluminum and steel tariffs and the automobile tariffs, that could be extremely— It's a wrong-footed policy, but I think he, he's not wrong in saying we have to have a fair game. Right. And so maybe there'll be a compromise that uh, will work out. You know, we, we can't sell him short. He's the president of the country, and therefore he's the pilot of the airplane, and I always root for the pilot. I want him to do well. I'm troubled about the environment. You know, I, I was privileged to have dinner with him in the White House mm-hmm. in July of last year— and when we, it was only 10 people in the president, we sat down at the dinner table. He couldn't have been more gracious. He said to me, Lee, you got a great reputation. Do you think your open letter to President Obama created your SEC problems? So somebody had briefed him, and I told him, uh, a lot of people say that. I have no idea if it did or it didn't. All I know is that they basically ruined my business, and they did not conduct themselves in a proper manner. Uh, still, they refused to answer the question, what did you learn between your first ask and your second ask? I sent two very polite letters to um, uh, Jay Clayton, the head of the SEC. He did not respond to him. And when I encountered uh, Mary Jo White at this seminar, and I promised her $100,000 to favor charity, if she answered the question, she demurred and didn't answer the question. I'd like to know, what did you learn? I don't, I don't think you can get an answer to that I question. Think you're, I think any, you're realistic. Uh, <laughs> anytime soon. So... If you so currently you sound like you're fairly constructive about the market, are you more or less fully invested or or what? Yeah, what pretty, pres- pretty much. But I, I have a unique problem now in mm-hmm. the sense that by becoming a family office, uh, about forty five percent of the money is our client money, right. and I have a legal obligation to return their money. So between now and the end of the year, I'm not buying anything. I'm basically selling, uh, and hopefully intelligently. And hopefully the market is higher at the end of the year than it is now. Right. And I sell out of good prices. And then I revert to a family office and I get the S&P 500 off my back. So hypothetically, let's say your views change. You mentioned 1919 or 1920. Let's say it's two years hence and you, you're saying, 
hey, I, I really smell something bad coming. How would you adjust your portfolio would, then, and how would that be different from when you were running client money? Uh, it wouldn't be. The only difference, and it's a significant difference, mm -hmm. is I would be willing to buy, buy into more illiquid things that I felt the values were outstanding because I didn't have to worry about quarterly redemptions. So you could hold it longer term. Longer you could term. be early and not worry about screaming clients. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, you don't have that bugaboo of running after the S&P and outperforming. Mm -hmm. And I would try to invest more for long-term capital gains. I'm not sure what year it was, but 30-odd years ago, Warren Buffett had in his annual report an example of a money manager who every year bought that year's hot stock, made 15%, sold it, and invested next year's hot stock, mm -hmm. compared to basically buying a 15% grower that compounded at 15% every year. And after 30 or 40 years, you had thousands of times more money after right. tax. And that's why I've constantly say, you know, Warren is a phenomenon in his own right, but people don't give him adequate credit. His record after tax is truly unbelievable. You, you're not giving up 30% in short-term capital gains and then letting that 30% compound over decades. I would hope that, say, 75% of what I do would be oriented towards long-term capital gains, 25% maybe short-term, where we think we have a de uh, variant perception, mm -hmm. etc. But I'd like to invest for long-term capital gains, and uh, I'm going to have a different fee structure um, and I'm gonna a different approach. The way I've run my fund, which is why we, my people turnover has been very nominal, even during mm -hmm. this SEC period, very nominal, is I tell the people, if you make money for the investors, you get paid no matter what. So I accepted a big netting risk. In other words, in any one year, you know, if like energy's out of favor, your energy guy might lose money if he didn't get it right, and your other people might make money. So I paid the people that made money, mm -hmm. I didn't get a check back from the guy or the gal that lost money. Right. So I had a big netting risk. And in, in the new business, I said, I'm not gonna accept the netting risk. The family's gonna put 10% of the profits above 3% in the pool to be shared by the 12 or 15 people. And so we're all gonna be in this together. Can you stick around a little bit? I have some more questions for yeah, you. Yeah, absolutely. We've been speaking with Lee Cooperman of Omega Advisors. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and come back for the podcast extras, where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things value investing. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. You could follow my daily column on bloomberg.com. Check me out on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast, Lee. Thank you so much for doing this again. I, I've been looking forward to um, having a conversation. I still have a ton more questions. I didn't get to talk about the giving pledge or your philanthropy, mm. and you told a wonderful story. I don't even believe it was on on air the last time. The giving pledge is uh, Warren Buffett and Bill Gates, the commitment from people to give away the majority of their assets. I think technically half. Half, well, I, majority. I, so I've told Warren, I'm going to say 51%. I told Warren, you know, I was uh, on uh, TV, a competitive network, the other day, and Warren sent me a very nice uh, email, which he gave the uh, fellow at the other network he got the uh, approval to read. And I'm trying to fumf around and find it. He says, hi, Lee, you were terrific on XYZ. You could say CNBC. It's CNBC okay. CNBC today. I think I know exactly the emotions you experienced and the reason you followed since I have done somewhat the same thing in 1969. <laughs> the one thing I can guarantee you is that your parents would be extraordinarily pleased at the course you have followed and are going to continue to follow in life. Example can be powerful. At the Giving Pledge, we have disproportionately uh, a low number of people who have made their fortunes in Wall Street. You can be a powerful influence in having them rethink their priorities. Hope you make use of the moral podium on which you stand. I agree with you that I didn't ask for enough when I called on you to pledge 50%, and I'm glad you're correcting me for my error. I told my plan <laughs> to give it all away. You also, the, you also told a charming story about dinner with Buffett, Gates, and a bunch of other participants. Mike, Mike Bloomberg, uh, right. Tony Forsman, who's deceased, John Paulson. I was the poorest guy. That, 
that's the I, joke you said is yeah, well, you're the you poorest know, guy I've, at the I've table. Lived, I've lived the American dream. And, I've well, been who, very lucky. who picked up the bill for that? Uh, yeah. The mayor. Oh, it wasn't you. It was in the philanthropic. No, it was in his philanthropic offices. I mean, he's just terrific guy. And, you know, basically, look. I figured out a long time ago, there's only four things you can do with money when you think about it. Mm -hmm. The first thing you can do with money is you spend it on yourself. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mentioned before, my wife has worked for 35 years as an educator. I don't collect art. I work very long hours by design. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not a consumer. I'm not a clothes horse for obvious reasons that people, (laughs) they can't see me, I'm on radio, but you know, I'm a chubby guy. So, you know... um, uh, I can consume what I used to make. I don't make any money anymore because the SEC took care of cooking my business. So the first thing you could do is spend it on yourself. I'm not a consumer. I ha- happen to think that material possessions brings with them aggravation. So I like that. I-, I think less is more. That's just my own view. Fair. Second thing you do is you give your money to kids. But I think anybody who gives, if they have a lot of money, give all your money to kids is wrong, which is that deprives them of self-achievement. For sure, uh, and you know, you look at what happens to lottery winners and sports. So I, I don't uh, want to leave. Not, I, not, I, I not healthy. My kids are geese some money, but not, not nothing uh, remotely approaching what I have. The third thing you could do is you give it to the government, but only a fool gives the government money. You don't have to give them. Right. And the fourth thing is you, you recycle it back into society, and that's what my family and I have decided to do. My signature. I have a lot of things I'm doing, but my signature event is called Koopman College Scholars. If you live in Essex County, New Jersey. Um, and you show the initiative enroll in a free three-week pre-college program designed by Franklin Marshall. You're academically qualified. I'm big on equal opportunities, not on equal outcomes. Uh-huh. And you have financial need unmet by government. I give these kids up to $10,000 a year for six years to get a college degree. Uh-huh. And it's uh, life-changing. I get very emotional. I see. It. But you know, I have. How, you've been doing this every year for how well, long now? About, I'm in my fourth year. I put mm-hmm. $25 million in a fund, and there's enough wow. money to send 500 kids to college. I told the uh, guys at the SEC, uh, for what you're costing me, I could go to 2,500 kids. They didn't seem to care. And so this is life changing, and uh, it's important to me. Huh. It's called Koopman College Scholars. The- and I have other things I do in the Jewish world. Uh, I've done a lot. I, Talk I try about to give, birthright. Weren't you an early I have advocate a large of- fund where I send a bunch of busloads kids to birthright Israel. I uh, subsidize Jewish summer camps. Uh, my granddaughter and my daughter-in-law Jody uh, preside over requests for mitzvah money for, mm-hmm. uh, to for bar uh, mitzvahs. Uh, I did a major wing at St. Barnabas Medical Center, which I got more than I bargained for. I said this in the dedication. They asked me for a number. I gave them the number, and when I looked what they built, it was fabulous, uh, like 140-odd private rooms, 50 neonatal centers. My name is on the building. I get more credit than I deserve. I feel blessed to be in a position to give it away, and it wasn't all that way. As I said to Warren Buffett and Bill Gates and, and Mike Bloomberg, you know, I'm the first, first generation born in America, my family, first generation to go to college. Up until Columbia, all my education was public school based. I went to public grade school in the Bronx. I went to public high school in the Bronx. I followed the advice of Harley Screeley. I went west and I went to college in the West Bronx, Hunter College, which is now called, called Lehman College. Right. And then I had a short 16 month stay at Columbia, which opened the door to Goldman Sachs because Goldman, probably hiring out of someone out of a mold, wouldn't hire out of the city university. And the MBA Columbia got me in the Goldman. I started uh, my career. I mean, I got my MBA on January 31st of 67. Had a six-month-old kid who was now approaching 51. Uh, I had no money in the bank. Uh, and um, I had a student loan to repay. So by definition, I had negative net worth. So I didn't, couldn't take the next the vacation. At that time, I think they were going to Mexico. Now they go to Australia. And I went to work at Goldman the very next day. And I started my career with a negative net worth, made a lot of money. I'm taking the giving pledge with Buffett. And, you know, I mean, I like the arc of my life. I feel good about things. And uh, But I know a lot of people that worked hard that didn't make it, you know. So I, I was lucky. I went to a firm whose name didn't change. Right. You know, you could have gone to Good Body, could have gone to Kitty Peabody, you could have gone to Coon Loeb, you could have gone to, you know, um, Loeb Roads. Uh, instead, I went to Goldman Sachs. Uh, that was a good decision. So I, I deserve some credit for making a good decision because it wasn't the best financial offer I had. The best decision I made in my life was I went to dental school. <laughs> okay, Back in the 60s, if you finished your major and minor in college in three years, they would allow you to count your first year of dental or medical school towards your fourth year of college and get a separate degree. 
So I toiled very hard in the summer of 1963 and took physical chemistry at the University of Pennsylvania. It was my major was chemistry, my mind was math and physics, and I, I, I enrolled in August of 63 in the University of Pennsylvania Dental School. And after eight days, I developed a concern that I was pushing myself in a direction that I wasn't fully uh, committed to. And it was traumatic. My father, may rest in peace, was pissed as hell at me because you know I paid tuition for a year, I paid room and board. Uh, uh, the dean of the dental school put me on a guilt trip. He said, you took the 101st applicant. You, you deprived him of a dental education. Uh, my dad was going around telling everybody, my son, the dentist. And uh, so it was very traumatic. It was the best decision I ever made. And so, you know, life is partly making good decisions, but also a lot of luck. Let's talk a little bit about Columbia, where you got your um, MBA. You had some fairly uh, interesting colleagues that you hung out with there. Yeah, well, uh, two of my best friends uh, to this day I met at Columbia, Mario Gabelli and mm -hmm. uh, Art Sandberg. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and what Columbia did is it gave me the language of business, accounting, operations, research, statistics, what have you. Uh, it uh, gave me three initials after the end of my name that I kept for the rest of my life. And uh, it gave me a bunch of relationships that went out into the business world where you could network in the future with relationships. And I made friendships that I kept for the rest of my life. And that's what life is all about. That that must have been <clears throat> some uh, car commuting back and forth to Columbia. We did, it did, it did. And my fondest recollection is Mario and I and Art had the same stockbroker. I think his name, he's, I'm sure he's deceased. Uh, High Fishman. Uh, and Mario and I used to push each other, jostle each other to get into the one phone booth at the business school to call a broker to put an order in. But it was, it was good. You know, I love Mario because, you know, the only thing that's changed about Mario in the last 50 years is the color of his hair. <laughs> he has the same physique he had when he was at business he, school. I wish I could say the same. He's a good friend, a terrific human being, and his, head's, his hair has gone from red to white, but he has it all. You know? so, so you mentioned um, some of the philanthropy you've done with sending uh, some kids from from New Jersey to college. Um, you talked about one of the uh, buildings you endowed uh, in one of the hospitals. St. Barnabas Medical Center. St. Barnabas. Let's talk a little about Columbia because you set up multiple scholarships. What else have you done uh, with Columbia and how well, do you see I, that I, manifest? I've given them, uh, I think, comfortably over $30 million mm -hmm. uh, towards the building. I endowed a chair there in economics and finance. I've given a similar amount of money to Hunter College. You mm -hmm. know, uh, the truth of the matter is, uh, Columbia's more aggressive in asking. They're both worthy causes, but when you think about it, I, I went to Hunter for $24 a semester. That's amazing. I met my wife my sophomore year, and we married 54 years. So if somebody gave your wife and a top-notch education for virtually nothing, right. uh, yo. And today, I think the tuition's about $6,000 a year. So I gave them uh, aid, a uh, financial aid, uh, uh, at the at, at Hunter, and they needed some help in a library, so we endowed a library. Uh, my name is in a lot of things, but that's secondary to me. I don't care about that. The highest form of giving is anonymous. Mm -hmm. So whoever's in Hunter College uh, alumni uh, office, you should reach out to Lee. They have, sure. they have, they have. I've given them over $30 million. <laughs> they tap me out. I give And I give Jennifer Rabb, the president of Hunter, all the credit. Mm -hmm. Because when she called me up, I said, you got a problem in dealing with me. Uh, Which so is? What's the problem? I said, I never stepped foot in Hunter College. I went to Hunter in the Bronx. Hunter in the Bronx today is called Lehman College. Oh, at the end of the Korean War, Hunter in the Bronx went co-ed because there was inadequate capacity in the colleges to absorb the returning GIs. Mm -hmm. And so I went to Hunter in the Bronx. And she was very sharp. She says, pull out your diploma and look at your diploma. What does it say? It says Hunter College. Hunter College. Yeah. So she got me for a lot of money, but uh, <laughs> I'm happy to be in a position to do it. That, that's really my, interesting. My granddaughter, one of my, my youngest granddaughters says, Pop, everybody who asks you for money, you give them money. And I said, money's like manure. It's supposed to be spread around. That's right. You, we'll, we'll speak after the interview. We'll have a conversation about that also. Um, let's, let's jump to some of, my favorite, uh, some of my favorite questions. I'm just looking through all my notes to see what I missed because we bounced all over before. There was mm. one question I, I had circled ahead I had wanted to ask you oh here it is so you and and certainly Columbia must have influenced you this way you're you're known as a value investor um, and and uh, 
some of the greatest value investors of all time have come out of uh, Columbia Business School. Uh, the past couple of years, value has been lagging growth dramatically, as it often does. Uh, over long periods of time, value beats growth. But over short periods of time, sometimes growth uh, dominates. How do you deal with that when you're running a fund and you have quarterly um, letters to put out and quarterly responses to clients when what you know works over the long term is lagging over the short term? Well, at this point, what is value? What is growth? My largest position in my fund is Google. Mm -hmm. you know, Google I would say Google is growth. It's, it's not growth, but it's not an expensive value. Google... When I bought it, was under 20 times earnings, mm -hmm. you know, growing at 20% a year with an unbelievably fortress balance sheet. Right. Uh, you know, tremendous company. You know, um, that's not, that's not, it's growth, but it's value at a reasonable price. Mm -hmm. Warren Buffett, one of the great value investors of all time, correctly saw the value in Apple. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, uh, I try to resist labels. Uh, I would, uh, I want to be value oriented. Uh, but it could be a growth company. Uh, and I take them each one at a time. And the way I run the firm is, you know, the analysts propose and I dispose. So a, a <laughs> position that I have, a, a decent-sized position, something called AMC Media, um, mm -hmm. symbols AMCX. Um, Cable channel and, and movie they, theaters? They own The Walking Dead and mm -hmm. uh, things like that. And the Dolan family owns 17% of the economic interests of the company. And because in Dolan's own uh, Cablevision and they MSG. They sold Cablevision. Oh, they sold. And what about MSG and the MSG Knicks? MSG is they still own. That's mm -hmm. the uh, Jimmy Dolan. The, that's his prize. The son. The, the son. Mm -hmm. So anyway, getting back to AMCX. So 17% of the economic interest is owned by the Dolan family. Because it's an A stock and a B stock, and they have the B stock, they own 60% of the vote. So anybody that owns sixty percent of the vote is not doing things to entrench themselves. Sure. What they do is they, they with a seventy percent economic interest, they're doing what they think is economically sensible. Well, if you look the last two years, every quarter, like clockwork, they bought back fifty to hundred million dollars worth of stock every quarter. They paid um, between the uh, like uh, very high forties up until sixty. Mm -hmm. I pay attention. To that, and when a seventy percent owner is buying significant amounts of stock, now I happen to think the industry is consolidating, and I wouldn't be surprised if somebody bought this company. Sure, and uh, the private market value probably approaches eighty. Another one, so I would call that value, but they're growing the business. Uh, the earnings in the last two quarters substantially exceeded Wall Street expectations. Another one that just had a good quarter, but I wouldn't call it a growth company, but it'll grow in line with GDP, United Airlines. Mm -hmm. United Airlines has bought back over 40% of its stock in the last three years. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, the market's trading at 17 times earnings, and this thing is trading at uh, eight, eight and a half times earnings with a big buyback in place. And they're on record as, I think we're talking 8, 10, 12, and for all intents and purposes, they're agreeing with that, that progression. And the $12 we're using assumes very modest buyback uh, given the pace they're buying back, they probably earn over 13. Um, and the stock is, uh, you know, and the last I checked was about $80. So you don't limit yourself to any one sector. We're of the very market. eclectic. We're very mm -hmm. eclectic. It's growth at a reasonable price. And I have no problem with growth as long as the price, you know, I, if I listened to my analyst, I would be making more money. He's been very bullish on Amazon, but, you know, mm -hmm. the multiple scares me off. Though it's a very unique, special company, had a great quarter this year. Very good quarter. We own Amazon. We owned uh, Facebook, a uh, smaller amount. We owned uh, Adobe. Uh, we own uh, Google. Um, so let let's talk about Facebook for a second. They they got, and I want to get your thoughts on how a manager and a trader responds to something like their quarter. Their their numbers were. Disappointing their subscription. Um, I reduced the position in response to the number. To be honest with you, but I had the after extra, the fact. Yeah, after the fact, uh, my costs are still well below the current market. Uh, I have an extra incentive. Like I said, I got to return a mm -hmm. bunch of money to the investors, and if something's not going to work for a while, I might be more prone to selling. So it. you you have a short term hard stop at the end of the year, yeah, yeah, but I have to give back but, uh, I, a I, chunk I, of cash in two thousand eight when a lot of hedge funds were closing up and gating capital. Mm -hmm. Most people won't remember this. My picture was in the newspaper, the New York Times, and under the cap, my picture was a caption, they'd have to lower me into my grave before I would gate capital and not honor a high water mark. Right. So, you know, I have to give the back, not in kind, they're gonna get back 100% in cash, and 
I'm in a position to do it because a big chunk of what we manage is the GP capital, but uh, I have to make a lot of sales. So let's assume it wasn't, you, you didn't have the hard stop coming December 31st. As a trader and a manager, how do you look at a stock that takes a 20% haircut? Do you think the fun, is this a question of the fundamental story changing or just from a risk management perspective, you're going to take a little off the table? Uh, from a risk management perspective, I took something off the table. Uh, my guess is it's a hiccup that mm -hmm. they have future growth ahead of them. But, you know, in the world of technology, somebody's innovation and somebody's obsolescence, and there was a decline in the number of sure. users, and, you know, maybe there's something changing. So you, you control risk by diversification. You control risk by p position size. You control risk by the financial characteristics of the company you own. In other words, do you own 50 multiple stocks or do you own 12 multiple stocks? And I would say that uh, an AMCX, which I cited, or a United Airlines, when you have big buybacks and large amounts of free cash flow and way below market multiples, you have an element of protection. Hmm. And that's where I feel most comfortable. So I'd have uh, concentrated bets, but in things that I perceive to be less riskier. So let's, let's jump to some of my favorite questions, and I know I only have you for a, a finite amount of time today. Um, Tell us the most important thing that most people don't know about you. I think my life's been an open book. Let me just tell you what I think the most important thing I tell the kids. Okay. I, I, and I meet with a lot of kids, and I tell them the one thing that's most important, no matter how rich you are, the one luxury you cannot afford is arrogance. Be nice to people. Be a good friend. Be available. That's good advice. That's, that's what I tell them. So but I you, think people know about me. So you mentioned some of your early mentors in passing. Who were the people who helped form your your career and and your worldview? It's hard to select one. Uh, Give you know, us multiple. Yeah, well, uh, I have an enormous respect for Ken Langone. I've said this publicly previously. Mm -hmm. I learned a lot from uh, Bob Mnuchin, who was the head of trading at Goldman. My trading instincts uh, emanate in part from his wisdom. Uh, very smart man. He's, uh, I think he's probably 80-something now. Mm -hmm. I speak with him frequently. Uh, on the industrial side, I visited twice a year for 25 years with Dr. Henry Singleton, the founder of oh, sure. Teldyne. And the man was in a class by himself, absolutely brilliant. Never got the recognition he deserved, uh, and I tried to change that. Uh, I wrote a case study for Harvard on him, and there was a professor, an adjunct professor, who wrote a book uh, called uh, The Outsiders, and featured Singleton, which brought recognition to him. Uh, John Whitehead, John Weinberg, the co-senior partners at Goldman. There were a bunch of people. My parents, you know, my father was a good influence on me. So that's who the folks who um, helped form and shape your career. Who impacted the way you think about investing? What? What? Roger Murray, who was uh, the professor in security analysis. He's long gone, unfortunately. Um, just reading and what have you. But uh, I say Roger Murray was my professor in security analysis, a unique guy. He was an adjunct professor. He also ran college retirement equities fund mm -hmm. and a very, very, very uh, good man. When, when you say reading, you read more financial literature than anybody I know. You're not necessarily sitting down with books, but you're looking at annual reports and that yeah, sort of stuff. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm reading all the re reports of my analysts keep me very busy. I don't read a lot of novels, though I did read two good books I enjoyed recently. Okay, uh, let's hear. Well, one, again, they're financially oriented. I read uh, I Love Capitalism by Ken Langone. Mm -hmm. and I Love was, Capitalism. By, it's a great read, and it was very meaningful to me because, you know, Ken's dad was a plumber in Long Island. My mm -hmm. dad was a plumber you mentioned in, this in, before. In, in the Bronx, and he had a, a, a paragraph in the book where he said his older brother typed invoices for his dad monthly on a Smith Corona typewriter. Wow. And I typed invoices along with my older brother on an Underwood typewriter for my dad, who was a plumber in the Bronx. But, you know, Ken is self-made, has not forgotten where he's come from, is extraordinarily generous, and has a value system that I just totally relate to. Mm -hmm. And he's a terrific guy. And uh, so he's one and I would say. You said two books. That's one. I love and, capitalism. And, and the other one was uh, Scott Wapner's book I enjoyed reading. What's the name of that book? Uh, something to do with the Wolves of Wall Street or something. Oh, like that. sure, absolutely. Yeah, that that sounds like a fun book. Um, Good so, book. So, what really excites you right now? What do you? What excites me, frankly, is seeing my kids and my grandkids grow old purposely, uh, with, with purpose and health with health. 
But uh, on the business side, I get excited by finding something somebody doesn't see, mm-hmm. making a bet and having Mr. Market prove me right. Mm-hmm. It's not for the greed, because the money's all going to go back to the system, but that's what I do. I, I excited about finding things that people don't see and making a bet. And uh, I just recently made a very large bet in an obscure company, uh-huh. and time will tell whether it pays out. And I like, I like it. Nobody owns it. Nobody knows anything about it. It's the second largest producer of vanadium in the world. It's called Largo Resources. Vanadium. Vanadium. Vanadium is an alloy mm-hmm. used in steel to strengthen the steel. And the Chinese have mandated the need for an improvement in the quality of their steel. Well, they've had some disasters yeah, well, in, in their so, construct, big construction yeah. projects. So there's an increase in demand for vanadium. And vanadium also was used in the grids to strengthen the grid. Uh-huh. Okay. Vanadium a year ago was $4 a pound. It's currently hovering between 18 and $19 a pound. And there's been a big explosion in their revenues and in their earnings. And uh, we have a consultant that we use who's an expert on vanadium, and he thinks the price can go into the mid-20s. So they're going to coin money. And what will money. that do to the stock price? I think the stock will probably worth three or four times what it's trading for. Really? But it's speculative. You know, you're not right. dealing with a multi-commodity company. You're dealing with one commodity, vanadium, so one mine. it's binary. Either it works or it doesn't. Yeah. So far, it's worked. I started out at 40 cents, and as last I checked, it was $2 and a few pennies. What's Canadian. the name of this company? It's called Largo Resources. Largo Resources. Well, 40 cents is a good... Uh... Well, what happened, there was a hedge fund, I won't mention, that was going out of business. And, and they, they were liquidating. The, they were liquidating, and uh, a, a, a good friend brought the opportunity to my attention, and my friend and I split the 10 million share block uh, equally. It was too, much too small for Omega. Right. At the time, the uh, capital structure of the company was le- less than 200 million, and we bought uh, the block at 40 cents, and uh, it's now like $2. And in some respects, it's a better buy now than it was then, because given the level, of the price level of vanadium, this will be a debt-free company by the end of next year, and will probably generate over a billion dollars in cash if the vanadium price stays here over the next couple of years. Huh, that, that's crazy. And a little bit outside of your usual uh, sweet yeah, spot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you, you, like, the, you like it for the, for the thrill. Um, and, the, and the profit potential, not the thrill. <laughs> what, uh, what changes are you looking forward to um, now that you're going to be running the family office? How- Absolute return, manager, maybe get into the gym to deal with my weight. I sleep a little bit later. It's interesting when I'm down in Florida. Mm-hmm. I see, when I'm in Short Hills, New Jersey, I get in very early in the morning. Not because I want to get in at six forty in the morning, but you I want to beat all beat, the traffic. Beat and, the traffic, yeah. so I leave my house at uh, five forty-five. Right. I walk in the office at six forty, six forty-five. In Florida, I had my battle with uh, New York. They recognized my home office being legitimate. It is a real office, mm-hmm. and I'm in my office in one minute. So I save two hours and 19 minutes a but day. But you're there more than six months a year, right? Close to seven months. I love so, Florida. So it's nothing it's... to do with taxes. It's the commute that right. drives me nuts. Nothing to do with taxes, but I save two hours and 19 minutes a day. And if I want to read research, I read research. If I want to go to the gym, I go to the gym. If I want to sleep a little bit later, I sleep a little bit later. But, you know, I, I, Ken Langone says it well. He manages his own money. When he looks in the, in the mirror in the morning, he knows who's to blame and who to credit. So this is it. Yeah, it's going to be my deal. And... Uh, uh, I'm, I'm happy about it. I love my investors. Let me tell you, my investors are very, very loyal. The majority of the individuals were. Uh, you know, they stayed with me at a time when the SEC was making accusations, and they stayed with me. Most of the institutions pulled out. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they use fiduciaries that don't want to use common sense. You invite them in, willingness to answer all your questions, and they basically they don't bother coming in. They just fire you. But whatever, it's life. Is, it is what it is, right? It is what it is. So tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. Well, my biggest mistake uh, was basically in 1998, I put a lot of money into the vouchers where Azerbaijan was uh-huh. privatizing. And uh, what's the mistake? I bet on an employee that broke the law. You know, So I don't know what would I do differently. Uh, maybe not make the investment, but it was an employee that was the most profitable guy that we had at the firm at the time. He was heads over heels of the investment. And he basically was an unequivocal advocate for the investment. We met with the president of the country who invited us in to make the investment. We had done all sorts of due diligence, but what I did not know is my employer was aware of wrongdoing, mm-hmm. which he didn't disclose. And uh, so I don't know what you say you do it all over again, but maybe I just say I wouldn't have invested in that country. 
Then, um, again, then again, you know, it was amazing. After we was discovered that there was a, a corrupt regime running the country, I get a letter from uh, uh, one government agency encouraging me to invest in Azerbaijan. It's like one department doesn't know what the other department is doing. Funny. World screwed up. So this is a question I'm not sure how you're going to answer or even if you can answer other than say work. What do you do for fun? I walk with mm-hmm. my older brother. I have a very close relationship. My brother's 82. Um, I just say I, I walk and I read research and I try to spend as much time with my grandkids as I can. I'm a very simple guy. I'm a, you know, not multidimensional. Uh, if if a millennial or a recent college graduate came up to you and, and said they were not sure what to do with their career, what sort of advice would you give them? I just tell you, do not go into a field for money. You know, a lot of people romanticize hedge funds. Go into a field where you have an aptitude and you have an interest. You know, Warren, the different smart people have said it differently. Warren Buffett says, go to work for people you admire and respect, tap dance to work, and everything will take care of itself. I agree with that. Uh, Henry Ford said, uh, you know, don't think about money. You, you know, just do, do what you love, love what you do. You're bound to be successful. So find your gift in life and pursue that gift. And that's kind of what I advocate. And our final question, what is it that you know about the world of investing today that you wish you knew 40-plus years ago when you were first beginning? It's a good question. I have to think about that one. I don't have a good answer. I know more today than I know 40 years ago. Um, I've learned if something is too good to be true, it's not true. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've learned that when everybody's on the same side of the boat, it's wrong. So, you know, when everybody is talking about one stock and everybody's in that stock generally something happens that goes wrong and they're not right all at the same time and the same thing when everybody in wall street is bullish on the same side of the boat be wary <clears throat> so from memory this is a memory i didn't anticipate this question in 2017 at the beginning of the year mm-hmm. uh the average strategist had a a, a year-end objective of 2350. Mm-hmm. Okay, and the year ended at like 2650. You would think somebody would turn conservative. No, everybody marked up their expectations. Everybody was bullish. Okay, and then you had the market took off in January, which further entrenched the bullishness. And then all of a sudden you had the big sell off in February. The market, I've learned, will do whatever it has to do to embarrass the largest group of investors. <laughs> so just keep your wits about you. Don't be cocky, be humble, and be nice. Like I said, you know, basically, uh, no matter how much money you have, the one luxury you cannot afford is arrogance. All that is quite fascinating. We have been speaking with Lee Cooperman of Omega Advisors and formerly of Goldman Sachs. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, Bloomberg.com, wherever finer podcasts are sold. And you could see any of the other 200-plus conversations we've had previously. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps put together these conversations each week. Medina Parwana is my producer slash audio engineer. Taylor Riggs is our booker slash producer. Michael Batnick is our head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.